Our first reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and we're reading from verses 13 to 17. And the heading is the question about paying taxes. So all pay attention. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Our next reading is rather short. It comes from Romans chapter 12, first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you were wanting to make a study in Reformation at the moment, one of the sexy areas is what is called the Radical Reform or the Radical Reformation. That is the loose um, group of movements that are neither Lutheran nor Calvin-based and that have all kinds of exciting innovations like believers' baptism and congregational church government and they look more like democracies than these top-heavy institutions and they have women at the forefront, at least in their earliest forms, and they do exciting things like getting arrested and executed and they're generally interesting, and as the name implies, they are radical. And in the study of the Radical Reformation, the sexy topic is discipleship. That was at the heart of their distinctives, at least in one way of reading it. The slogan that was up on the screen, if you saw it when we came in, to know Christ is to follow him, was one of the key phrases for this loose grouping. To know Christ is to follow him. You cannot know faith unless you're actually living faith. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's a life. And from the point of view of the activist change the world aspect of the study of faith, that's one of the things that draws people in to looking at the story of the radicals. If we want to understand our history and our tradition as a way of getting engaged, then that's where we'll find it. And in particular, in that part of the Radical Reformation, because it is actually very broad, the part called Anabaptism, which is a form of Christian faith and practice, is absolutely 
about doing stuff that matters, about peace witness, about justice activism, about bringing the kingdom and making a difference. And all of that's there. And that's some of what drew me to Anabaptism and the study of Anabaptists in the first place. Any of you who have heard me preach over the years will possibly realize that I've been deeply influenced by Anabaptist theology and its emphasis on discipleship. What difference does this make tomorrow? On faith in Christ, the commitment to following Jesus as actually changing how we live with our neighbors and with our enemies. Their identification as those who are willing to follow at whatever the cost has lived with me for a long time as a significant challenge. Never lets me get complacent. There is no place to hide if Anabaptist thinkers and faithful ones are your companions. They go on asking difficult questions like, what difference does this make tomorrow? And when you say you follow Jesus, how does anybody know? Where does it show? Anabaptists put discipleship absolutely at the centre of their faith and their practice. And one of the reasons why they rejected other forms of reform that they experienced happening around them was that people's lives weren't changed. They saw people saying the words of faith, sharing in the practices of the church, going to worship, baptising their children, sharing bread and wine, and they didn't see enough of a difference in their lives to give truth to the words of faith that they were saying. Now, that may or may not be true, but it was true that the Anabaptists took discipleship and the mutual support of discipleship very seriously. To become part of an Anabaptist congregation was to be baptized as a believer and to undertake to live within the discipline of that congregation. That is, to allow the other members of the congregation the right to admonish and rebuke and encourage and teach you. To share in bread and wine, as we will do shortly, involved, at least for some of the congregations, this promise. Will you practice fraternal admonition towards your brothers and sisters? It's interesting, actually. Even in the original, it has sisters. One of the very few 16th century church documents that names brothers and sisters as part of the active congregation. Hmm. Anyway, will you practice fraternal admonition towards your brothers and sisters? Make peace and unity among them. Reconcile yourselves with all those whom you have offended. Abandon all hate, envy, and evil towards everyone. Willingly cease all action and behavior that causes harm or disadvantage to your neighbor. And will you love your enemies and do good to them? And exclude, according to the rule of Christ in Matthew 18, all those who refuse to do so. And if so, let each say individually, I will. So the way the service was conducted, each person who was present made their own personal assent one by one. This is why I never use this liturgy. It is too big and too demanding for most of us. But that was part of what it meant to be an Anabaptist congregation. Now, the, it includes exclusion. Matthew 18 is where Jesus says, if your brother offends you, go and talk to him. If that doesn't work, take somebody else and go and talk to them. If that doesn't work, tell the church. If that doesn't work, put them out of the church. That's, that's what's being referred to there. And the church has always had the right and the practice of excluding from its community, um, putting out those who have not lived appropriately. Usually it was around doctrine. Uh, people are, are, 
are excommunicated, but that right had been exercised by priests, by bishops, by the Pope. This group did it themselves. Much more up close and personal. People were examining each other's lives. Were you living the faith you were proclaiming? And if not, you don't immediately exclude somebody. There's a whole process. But it's about living a life of faith that can't be ducked, that's open to scrutiny. And that might make an interesting set of reflections and explorations as we go on with this series of movements in the 16th century Reformation and their gifts to us today. What might Anabaptists have to say to us about the nature of belonging to a Christian community and living mutually accountable lives of Christian discipleship? I'm not actually going to ask you to reflect on this important and interesting question of discipleship today, at least not in the shape of individual responsibility. I want to reflect with you on the fascinating and world-changing question of church-state relationships. And assuming you are normal people, you'll now be thinking, this doesn't really sound nearly as exciting and involving, uh, and uh, perhaps I'll just stop listening. And believe me, I have a lot of sympathy if at this point you think you will just switch off. As some of you know, I'm part of um, Churches Together in Britain and Ireland work. And in particular, I moderate a group which looks at what are called issues of faith and order. That's how we organize the church and what that means and what questions are raised about it when churches try to find common ground and look for unity does have to be said, this is a kind of a specialised area of interest, and the folk that are involved in the organisation and working at areas where churches can work together, sharing in the support of refugees, for example, which is a large part of our work, or supporting churches as they confront the damage of racism, which is another significant thing that Churches Together is doing. Those discipleship, those justice issues have energy. They take up a lot of time and attention at the meetings, a lot of support from our resources. When I get up and do my bit about faith and order and the discussions we're having about the mutual recognition of ministry and how to encourage people to share communion when previously they've not, I can feel the energy dissipate. And then when I have to talk about issues of legislation and matters of church and state, people go to sleep. Because why does that matter? But I think it does. I don't think it does the way we do it at CTBI at the moment, I have to say. But I think that's because we're coming at it from the wrong direction. I think if we come at it from the way the Anabaptists did, it really changes things, and it depends on what you think the church is. So let me give you just a bit of background. Dawn said she was quoting me recently. Whenever you ask Ruth a question, she starts with, now let me tell you the story behind it. So that's what I'm about to do. In the earliest days of the church, as I'm sure you know, it was not overwhelmingly popular with the Roman Empire. And at various points and in various ways, there was persecution, there was attempts to make the church cease. And one of the reasons for this was that those who were followers of Jesus did not take part in the religion of the empire. The Roman Empire was pretty all-inclusive when it come, came to faith. People could and people did follow any religion they wanted, but they were also expected and at times required to offer sacrifice to what was called the genius of the empire, often in later years embodied in the emperor. And that's the kind of spiritual aspect of the empire. And this is a very particular 
form of understanding of religion, that somehow a community, in order to live together without the collapse, needed a common faith or a common expression of its religious aspect. For the empire, this was expressed through offering sacrifice, which was a pinch of incense dropped at a public burner, to honour this spiritual force that sustained the empire, or the spirit of the empire. It had nothing to do with private morality, nothing to do with a personal connection with the divine. It was about being part of and being seen to be part of the, the, the community within which you lived. This spiritual facet of the community which was under the control of those in power, it was mediated through those in power. Once you'd done that, there was no reason why you shouldn't take part in whatever religious rites or disciplines or beliefs you chose, which worked well enough until you get a religion like Christianity, which had the central tenet, Jesus is Lord, subclause, therefore nobody else is. And the, the, that's a direct challenge. It was already inherent in Judaism, the struggle that the Jews had to live well under Roman rule, but they'd more or less managed it because the empire recognized the existence of an ancient religion, Judaism predated the Roman Empire, and gave them permission to carry on under certain circumstances within a controlled area, um, and always with the threat of it all falling apart, which was why you get various bits in the story of the Gospels where, for fear of the Romans, certain things are done, as long as they prayed for the emperor, which on the whole they did. But it's what's going on in the background of that story about paying taxes. Who do we honour? And Jesus says, whose head's on the coin? Fine. Give it to him. And give to God what bears the image of God. And what bears the image of God? The human being. And the question is, to whom is ultimate loyalty given? That was a whole debate that was going on. And Jesus, they're trying to draw Jesus into it. Jesus is dealing with it as Jesus does. The early Christian believers were not recognized by the Roman Empire after the split with Judaism. And so they were seen as troublemakers. And they got into trouble for it. And they faced persecution and they faced death. Until the year 312. And that's when Constantine became emperor. And over the next few years, he moved more and more into a position of supporting and then adopting Christianity and making it the official religion of the empire. And to be a Christian ceased to be, ceased to, uh, be being persecuted by the empire. And the faith moved from being based in the house and the household into being a public presence. And what's not to like about that? But there is one thing to notice about it. Christian faith had an impact on the empire. Some of its practices were changed. Sunday work was discouraged. Slavery was changed. Various other forms of ill treatment were outlawed. But there was also a significant change to the church in practice and outlook. Most notably, the idea that religion, and in particular the religion of the empire, was about public and necessary practice of a set of disciplines and affirmations, that didn't change. So what had been going on before, sacrifice to the spirit of the emperor, just got taken into the church. And instead of being the persecuted, the church actually becomes the persecutor of those who, doesn't, who don't fit, those of different faiths, pogroms against the Jews begin, those who are deemed heretical, and the persecution of heretics begins and continues right through the period we're considering and still. Because what has happened is that the church has become 
the public representation of the religion of power and structure. So it was no longer illegal to be a Christian, it actually became illegal not to be. And everyone was baptised in infancy because it was part of being in the social and the civic community. And the struggle between church and civil power is an ongoing issue in the Middle Ages, and I'm not going to look at that in any detail, you'll be glad to know. Because what matters for what I'm trying to reflect on today is that this model was taken over more or less unchanged by the leading reformers. Luther argued that the Pope's power should be diminished, but that the prince, that is whoever was locally in power in the region, had the, the right and the duty to lead the church to reform. The prince was still in charge. Calvin looked to the city council in various of the, the city-states, that is to the elected government, which is an anachronistic way of putting it, but it's, it's still the power structure, to enforce reform in Geneva and other states. Even where the reformed believers were under persecution, as in France, the expectation wasn't that the church should be separated, but that there should be some activity to replace the civic leaders with those who were enlightened as to reform, and then reform could be carried out. Church and civil society were understood, and this is the image they used, as two sides of the same coin. Church was society in its religious aspect. Civil authority was the religious community in its political aspect. They were the same thing. And the Anabaptists saw something and tried to practice something different. One of the roots of the Anabaptists was a small group of young men who met to study scripture with the leader of the reform in Zurich, a man called Ulrich Swingli. And he and they had become convinced that the things in the practice of the faith needed to be changed to be in line with scripture, particularly around how communion was celebrated. But the council wasn't keen. They needed to keep political ties with other cities where change wasn't happening. And Swingli, who was theologically convinced of this kind of position of the, the role of the council that I've been outlining, he was happy just to wait until things changed and not to rush it. But some of the others weren't. They became unhappy that political motivation was driving what they believed, or was stopping what they believed, and advanced to that which was true and godly. So early in 1525, they took the radical step of meeting in somebody's house and rebaptizing one another. Now, just pause on that. Because what they were doing was enacting the conviction that everything that they had ever experienced of church, all that they had been part of through their infant baptism, through its connection with the civil community, through the right of the council to determine how the church should be the church, Everything they had ever known and taught and experienced, it was not church. Because that's what they are saying by practicing baptism. Baptism is how you enter the church. And by saying they would baptize one another, they were saying there is nobody to baptize us. And the baptism we have had as infants is not baptism. And the church we have been part of is not the church. Can you imagine it? This small group, probably in their 20s, of young men and their families, one evening doing this. They said it's, that what, what, what exists is so far from being church that it's necessary to go right back to the beginning and start again. They cannot even find anyone to baptize them because there is nobody who is truly baptized. So they are starting again. 
But their primary issue is not baptism. It's the nature of the church in relation to the state. The baptism that they practice is the consequence of that position. But it's the nature of the church in relation to the state. Far from being an aspect of the civil community or the way the civil community expresses its religious aspirations or any of that, they were saying the church is the movement of the spirit through the people of faith. The church is the gathering of those who name Jesus as Lord. The church is the people of God. And that's something really different from those previous models. It's something truly radical. And it is going back to the beginning. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, in that passage that we read together, he writes to you plural. You plural be transformed. Not you and you and you and you, but you, the congregation, be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, he says. Do not let the structures of this world shape how the church is. Be transformed. Be something different. The people of God. The church is not that which is shaped by the world they are in, but through the Spirit acting in and through them. And there's something of that in Jesus' teaching on Caesar and God and taxis. There are those things which belong to living together in a civil community, which must be handled properly. We, we cannot opt out of them. We need to take our proper place. We need to be responsible and effective. That is not the same as being the people of God. It may be a consequence of being the people of God. Frank was quite right. We need to listen to what is said about taxis because we have a duty and a responsibility to do that. But it's a consequence of being the people of God. It does not make us the people of God. Render to God which is God, that which bears the image of God. It's to do with how to be human. The human being bears the image of God and belongs to God. And that's what Jesus is saying. Our, our being human in relationship to God is not dependent on Caesar. It is dependent on and shaped by God. And that's what these radicals were reaching out towards. That's what we continue to struggle to work out. What does it mean to live as the people of God, to be the church... When we understand that, not as an institution governed by the same forces and the same needs and the same requirements as civil society or by market forces or by international tensions or whatever it is that shapes the way our society works, all the different aspects, what does it mean to be the people of God shaped by the action of the Spirit of God? For the Anabaptists, it had several implications. It moved them towards tolerance of those who did not share their faith. Anabaptists and Baptists are not the same thing. They have separate histories. Whole other story. But in this, they overlap. The church and the faith of the church is the gift of God through the Spirit. Faith, therefore, cannot be required. Not by parents, and so we don't baptize infants, not by the government, not by majority will. And so they argued for freedom of religion at a time when that was unheard of. And it remained a dangerous and subversive doctrine for a long time. Our own history is shaped by that. One of the earliest Baptists is credited with writing the first plea for religious freedom in English. A man called Thomas Helwes. In an otherwise really quite disturbing book called The, the Mystery of the Iniquity, which is really quite difficult to read, but in 1612 this was published, and it includes this paragraph. 
for men's religion to God is between God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Let them be heretic, Turk, Jew, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. And this is made evident to our Lord the king by the scriptures. He presented this to the king. The king was not terribly thrilled. He was imprisoned. Um, We think he possibly died in prison. It's unclear. But what he was doing was saying, the king king doesn't rule our conscience. And it's not just for me he's arguing it. Let them be heretic. That is, as far as he's concerned, Roman Catholic and Anglican. That's what I mean about the mystery of iniquity being a difficult book. But heretic. Let them be Turk, that is Muslim. Let them be Jew. At a time when all the Jews had been banished from the country. Or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them. It is not the king's role to take any power here. If faith is a gift, then people cannot be constrained into exercising it. It's the beginning of religious freedom and possible to argue, and I think with some justification, the beginning of an understanding of human rights and all that that means for how we live in a mixed society. And I know we haven't got it right, and there are all sorts of struggles, but here's where it starts. By separating faith and civic identity and insisting it's possible still to live together in respect and mutuality, even if we don't agree. They also found that this separation led them into mission. If the church is the place where the spirit is at work amongst people and is a people through whom the spirit works in the world, then there is a difference between the church and the rest of the community. And one of the implications of that is that it matters that the church tells its story. Faith is a gift. Not one people will receive unless it's offered. And in our context, in which fewer and fewer people know the narratives of faith, this is something to pay attention to. I'm not suggesting we need to be aggressive in our evangelism. Of course I'm not. But neither should we be afraid of communicating this account of the world in which we live. It's not well known There are all sorts of misconceptions out there about what we believe and therefore how we act. I'm sure you have had the reaction I've had when somebody on the radio, the television is going, Christians believe, I'm going, no they don't, no they don't, they really don't, or at least this one doesn't. And we need to be saying that. We need to be telling our story. Because if we're not doing it, who is? The Anabaptists, convinced as they were that the church was the way the Spirit acted in the world, looked to the Spirit's leading as a way of knowing when and how to speak. Where they, they said, where are the things of God being valued, even if they're not being named? And what would it take to name them? We might put it in a different way. Where are the places where the values of the kingdom are on show, even if that's not the language people are using? And how do we get to join in? Not apologetically, not diffidently, not doing things on our own that we could do with other people, but working with others and saying why. In a context where faith is beginning to be taken seriously in our social community, how do we speak of our faith in ways that make sense to people? And that counter some of the narratives that are out there that are just wrong. And the final aspect to hear today is a lack of anxiety. The Anabaptists faced horrors. 
they were martyred. The, the group who were uh, that first small group in Zurich, when it became known what they'd done, they were told they could leave the city or be executed. Some did one, some did the other. They were driven from place to place. They were always on the edge of extinction. There are very painful parts to that story. But they believed the church was not theirs to protect. They understood that the church was the action of God and the Spirit through people. And so it was God's job to protect it. That underlay their pacifism. They didn't need to take up the sword the way the state church did, because that was God's job. They might exclude people from communion, but when the state church was excluding people, it was then going on and executing them. And they said that wasn't their job. It's God's job to look after the church. And they could experiment, and they could change things, and they did. And they had long and heated debates about what, might, what should happen and how it should happen and, and if it didn't work and what you should do. And they had all kinds of weird and wonderful things that they tried, and some of them really very weird. But they tried things out, and they could let go of things because the point was not the structure or the inheritance or even what they knew and were familiar with. The point was what was God doing and how could they join in. The church, the, the, the Roman church, understood its authority as coming down through history from the first uh, apostles, mediated through the bishops, to the priests, to the people. The reformed church tried to find a way of, of adopting that kind of model, that authority within the church was structured, was held by those who were leaders, by those who were bishops in certain parts of it, by those who were teachers and doctors in other parts of it. The Anabaptists said, God's at work in the spirit, we just join in. They didn't have that kind of, you know, it was here and now, it wasn't coming down to them from the past. The church is the action of God in the spirit through the people. It is very easy to get downhearted about the church. It's very easy to get turned off by the question about what the church is and how it should shape itself. But what would happen? What would we be and what might we set free among us if we dared to trust not in institutions and not in some kind of organization to preserve the church and us with it, but to the moving, blowing, life-giving, burning, speaking spirit? Amen.